Welcome back to The Durst Show. Today I want to talk about uh, affirmative action, particularly race-specific affirmative action. The United States Supreme Court has before it a very interesting case growing out of my own university, the one I taught at for 50 uh, years. Uh, the claim by um, Asian-American applicants and, and others uh, litigating on their behalf is that Harvard's uh, admission process, by discriminating in favor of African-American and certain other ethnic groups implicitly discriminates against um, Asian Americans. In other words, by putting a floor below which uh, African-American admissions can't go, they in effect impose a ceiling on the number of Asian Americans who will be admitted. Now African-Americans say historically they've been uh, discriminated against through slavery. Obviously that's true. But Asian Americans have also been discriminated against. Um, Japanese Americans, 110,000 of them approximately, were rounded up and put in detention centers during the Second World War as the result of an edict uh, by the American military supported not only by liberal President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but by a liberal Supreme Court in a decision written by one of its most liberal members, uh, Hugo, Hugo Black. Um, so you can't really uh, solve problems of past discrimination against one group by discriminating against uh, another group. Uh, the, the betting odds by experts is that this Supreme Court, unlike past Supreme Courts, will almost certainly strike down uh, the Harvard plan and require that race not be considered explicitly as a factor in admission and that uh, no floor ceilings quotas uh, really are constitutionally permissible. Now, schools will find ways of circumventing uh, that holding. My former colleague, Professor Lawrence Tribe, has already said that Harvard and other elite institutions will figure out a way of getting around the holding of the Supreme Court, not something I think a constitutional law scholar should ever advocate uh, circumventing a Supreme Court decision. But universities will do so. They'll try to find ways of maintaining a essentially a quota system based on race uh, without using race explicitly. Um, in my view, that would not be the right thing to do. And in fact, I think this decision, which is likely to come uh, relatively soon, gives universities uh, an opportunity really to change the dynamics completely on university admissions um, by opting for a completely meritocratic system, uh, a system that is based entirely on the merits. Uh, you know, I advocated a system a long time ago, nobody took it seriously, in which um, the application um, to Harvard should include uh, no name, because names give away ethnicity. If your name's Dershowitz, they know you're not Irish. Um, uh, and uh, in which the uh, high school you came from isn't given. You can have a ranking for high schools, or one, two, three, four, based on previous performances, but it wouldn't matter if the number one ranked high school uh, was Exeter Groton Fancy School or uh, some yeshiva in Queens or Bronx High School of Science. So the admission committee wouldn't even know things about the applicants that were irrelevant, such as race and, and gender. Um, they would only look at meritocratic considerations. Now, you can broadly define meritocracy because it doesn't only uh, apply to uh, grades or test scores. It can apply to work done out of school, uh, to contests that have been won, to publications, to 
a range of other uh, talents. A person could have a, a C average, but uh, be a genius in mathematics, and the math department will want to admit that person, or uh, would be a genius at playing the, the cello, and the music department will, will want that person. Uh, so I'm not defining meritocracy solely by reference to uh, grades or, or test scores, but for me the goal should be uh, meritocracy, and that would mean ending a lot of other uh, preferences that are very popular today. Let me give you an example of one that would be very difficult to sell to alumni, athletic preferences. Um, being a good rower or being a good basketball player uh, has nothing to do with the role of a university. The role of a university is academic, intellectual, uh, ideas, research. Um, yeah, every school wants to have a good volleyball team uh, and a good track team, but that shouldn't be a criteria for admission. You admit people based on academic abilities and you hope that enough of them will be good athletes to field uh, decent, decent teams. And if they're not, okay, big deal. Uh, MIT uh, has never excelled at athletics and it's one of the greatest universities uh, in the world and a university that probably comes closest to meritocratic admissions than uh, most, most universities. Indeed, science universities generally are more meritocratic than universities that focus on the humanities or politics or, or things of, of that kind. So I would eliminate uh, athletic preferences. I would eliminate geographic preferences. Let's remember the origin of geographic preferences. There's no such thing as geographic preferences before the 20th century. And then um, the president of Harvard, who was a self-admitted racialist, he called himself a racialist and a bigot, um, and an anti-Semite, an anti-Catholic, an anti-black, um, uh, he created geographic distribution to reduce the number of Jews admitted to Harvard. Uh, because if you take a certain number of people from all over the country, and Jews and other ethnic groups are concentrated in some parts of the country, uh, you're going to end up inevitably taking fewer Jews and more people from uh, Wyoming and, and um, uh, other parts of the country with very small Jewish population. I would eliminate geographic uh, preferences, athletic preferences. Um, you know, the rumor was if you played the bagpipe, you could get into Harvard because uh, they need a bagpipe a player to accompany the band at the Harvard game. No, that, that bears no relationship to academic accomplishment, academic success. So uh, for me, uh, the criteria should be purely meritocratic. Uh, the people who have worked hardest, the people who have accomplished the most, uh, the people who have the highest test scores, yes. Uh, the people who have the highest grades, the people who have published the most, the people who have uh, done extracurricular activities that uh, show promise of, uh, of, of academic skills, uh, those are the students who, who should be admitted. Those are the applicants who should be admitted. Will you get a diverse class? Well, if you have real, real equality, I think you're going to get a, a diverse uh, class. Um, when I needed some uh, surgery not so long ago, I, I went all over asking for the absolutely most qualified doctor to perform this particular procedure. I went all over. And I got one name. One name came out from everybody. And of course, I went to that doctor. He turned out to be you know, an African-American uh, young man from Brooklyn. Uh, he was the most uh, qualified. And uh, I think if you eliminate barriers to equality and, and, and aspire to Martin Luther King's dream of a world in which his children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the quality of their character, you're going to get 
diversity, and you're going to get a deeper form of diversity. It won't be skin deep. It won't be superficial. It won't be politically correct. It will be uh, diversity of all kinds, ideological diversity, religious diversity, political diversity, uh, ethnic diversity. Uh, of course, you're going to get gender diversity and sexual preference diversity. All of those things will flow naturally from real equality. Now, uh, abolishing race-specific uh, affirmative action doesn't mean that you don't recognize the role that race has played in creating inequalities. Yeah, the university can go out and uh, pay special efforts to try to recruit uh, students from uh, groups that uh, uh, have been underrepresented because they haven't known about the, uh, about the availability of scholarships, etc., at major universities. So the schools can, can reach out. But the ultimate question comes down to a very simple one. Should uh, the African-American uh, child who went to Groton or Exeter and uh, fancy elementary school and whose parents are hedge fund operators and uh, um, billionaires or multi-multi-millionaires, uh, should that African-American applicant get preference over um, uh, a slightly more qualified academic kid from Appalachia who's had to struggle hard to be able to get good grades because he had to work because he had a, a, a mother who, who was addicted to drugs and, and, and a father who had left home. Uh, if you're going to have affirmative action, uh, base it on the individual. Uh, how much a person has accomplished, how far they've come from where they were, but don't do it based on something as, as superficial as, as skin color. Um, uh, yes, uh, if you're going to uh, admit uh, blacks on an affirmative action basis, prefer the, the, the young black woman or man who grew up in a very poor neighborhood in Harlem and in the inner city and, 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 and survived gang violence and survived uh, uh, mediocre uh, schools and really accomplished something over the hedge fund kid. Uh, and, uh, but today, because all that school cares about is the number of African Americans, many schools, not every school, uh, but they count the numbers, 13%, uh, 14%, never go below 10, and generally don't go much above 15%. If that's not a quota, I don't know what is. And, and there's no justification for, for race being the dominant factor. Even the Supreme Court has said that. They've said basically race can be a tipping point, but that's not the way the schools do it. The schools have basically separate admissions uh, criteria, uh, based on race, based on ethnicity. Um, when I went to uh, Brooklyn College, they also had it based on, on, on gender, and it worked the opposite way. Um, for a boy to get into Brooklyn College, um, you needed only an 82 average. I didn't even make that. I had about a 70, I don't know, something average. Um, and you had to take a test. If you didn't have the 82 average, I had to take a test, and I made it by the skin of my teeth. That's not my point. My point is that for a girl, a female, to be admitted to Brooklyn College, you needed an 88 average, six points higher, to avoid taking a test. Uh, that was rampant uh, gender discrimination. It was done in order to balance the entering class um, because there were more qualified women um, uh, applying to Brooklyn College than qualified men. And so if you had the same average, say an 84 average, required for both men and women, the class would be 65% uh, women and only 35% men. And my answer to that is, so, so what? Um, 
gender is not uh, have to be equal and balanced uh, um, any more than any other factor has to be uh, balanced. Um, and so I, I would like to see uh, this Supreme Court decision um, which is coming and which will probably strike down at least some aspects of race-specific affirmative action be used as a, an opportunity to do something that's never been done before. Because I'm not talking about going back to the good old days. The good old days were not good. They were just old. Uh, when I started teaching at Harvard and uh, when I was a student in, in college, um, schools had quotas. Yale had, I think, an 8% uh, Jewish uh, a, a quota. Um, there was enormous preference for alumni uh, children, which meant that people who didn't have parents who had gone to generations of Harvard or Yale uh, were discriminated against. That meant Jewish kids, Italian kids, Irish kids, Greek kids, black kids, Latino kids. Uh, they, they couldn't compete against the Brahmins and the, uh, the, the, the wasps who, who had generations of parents going to, to, to Harvard and, and Yale and Princeton. So I would abolish also all alumni preferences. And uh, if you're going to abolish racial preferences, which benefit, obviously, African-Americans, then you also have to abolish these other preferences, um, geographic preference and uh, alumni preference which discriminate against African-American kids. If you want equality, it has to be real, genuine equality. It has to be meritocratic. Look, I know today using the word meritocracy can be a dirty word, uh, a microaggression. If you say you want people to get their job based on merit or to be admitted to college, based on merit, you're a racist. Well, I think students should be admitted based on merit, broadly defined. Uh, but in the end, it should be merit. You want to give people an incentive to work hard, an incentive to study hard. Uh, you don't want them to work hard and study hard and then learn that somebody who didn't work as hard or didn't study as hard, hypothetically, uh, was admitted before you because of a factor over which they had no control, uh, race, gender, ethnicity, um, you name it. Geography, um, uh, parents, whether they fell into the right gene pool, um, those are all factors that uh, shouldn't be taken into consideration by a, uh, by a university. Um, um, you know, when I went to college, again, Brooklyn College, City College, Queen College, the New York City Colleges, they were great schools, and they didn't have um, any preferences based on race. It was purely the application for admission to Brooklyn College was a two-by-four card. I remember my mother typed it up because I couldn't type it. All it had was your name, your address, your social security number, um, uh, what high school you went to, what your grade average was, and what your score was on the... SAT or whatever the test was called at that time. And then you could attach your transcript from, from high school. There were no essays, there was no extracurricular activities. And uh, back in those days, City College and Brooklyn College were pretty good. And, and we had a significant number of, of people from every uh, racial and ethnic background as students at uh, the New York City Colleges, because there was no discrimination. Look. 
it doesn't mean that a kid who comes from a very, very poor family with no privilege or no background will have the same chance of admission, but that's the world we live in. Uh, they don't have the same chance of, of uh, good medical care, of, of good housing care. Uh, we should do everything in our power to equalize society in every way. But race-specific affirmative action is not the way to do it. It brings about a university experience which is richer for having a diverse array of students in the class, um, but, uh, but not as rich in terms of incentivizing young people to work hard and understand that they'll be rewarded uh, based on their merit. So um, that's my, my bit. Um, I know there'll be a lot of controversy about it uh, from both sides. I think the left will argue that race should be taken into account. Some on the right will say, well, athletics certainly should be taken into account. Alumni preferences should be taken into account. But you know me, I'm always alienating both the right and the left. And so I'm going to alienate both the right and the left. I think meritocracy is the answer. Meritocracy is the solution. Meritocracy is best for universities and, more importantly, best for America. Before I take some uh, questions, my sponsor. Uh, do you own a small business and need help in growing it? Then AnthemSoftware.com is your one-stop solution. Uh, Anthem Software helps small businesses all over America find, serve, and keep more customers profitably by providing world-class CRM software and results-focused market services. Your business will not only grow, but dominate in this highly competitive modern world. That's AnthemSoftware.com. Every business needs a song, and AnthemSoftware.com can help you sing yours. Visit AnthemSoftware.com to schedule your free demo of this amazing solution. So um, let's take uh, a few uh, questions at this point and, 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 and see um, whether I can respond to what's on your mind. Um, I only assume that Alan Dershowitz is fearful and ignorant about firearms because he has little or no experience with them. A number of, uh, of emails basically made that point. Professor Dershowitz, please share your experience with firearms. Have you ever held a gun? Have you ever fired a gun or been trained on the use of a gun? Did you ever own a gun? Well, let me tell you, I've never had an abortion. I've never had an abortion. I've never committed a murder. I have never done a great many things that I comment about and write about. I've written 50 books uh, that deal with some of these issues, but uh, yeah, when I was a kid, I went to camp and I shot target practice with a, a 22, but that doesn't count. No, I've never really uh, had a gun. I don't like guns. I wouldn't allow a gun in, in, in my home, none of my family. Uh, as far as I know, have, have, have guns. Um, I probably shouldn't say that because it makes me more vulnerable to attacks by some of the people uh, on some of these emails. Um, um, here, one, <laughs> one, one email says, guns protect the masses from people like Dershowitz. Is that a threat? I don't think so, but um, I was uh, told by a security expert some years ago that I should have a gun, but I... I've made a decision not to. The Second Amendment doesn't require me to have a gun. It just may permit me to have a gun under certain uh, circumstances. But you don't need to be uh, an expert on guns or an expert on abortion 
to have uh, constitutional uh, political decisions uh, about that. People could make the opposite argument. If you own a gun, you're disqualified. You can't, you can't enter into this discussion because you're, you're biased. You own a gun. Uh, this decision should be made only by people who are potential victims of guns, not people who are potential assailants with guns. So it's an absurd argument. Uh, I am perfectly competent to state opinions about guns, and you're perfectly competent to criticize me for it. But the fact that I don't regularly shoot guns uh, or have abortions is uh, not a good argument uh, for uh, disallowing me or discounting uh, um, my views. Um, I got a lot of a lot of uh, emails about guns. Take guns away from gangs that run rampant in democratic-controlled cities and left-wing nutjobs like Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and blacks in general. Then, goal, then gun crimes would be reduced to near zero. No, you can't generalize based on, on, on race at all. Um, um, and if you look at some of the most recent uh, horrors, uh, obviously the one in Buffalo was perpetrated, allegedly, by a white anti-black uh, racist. I wish they had taken his gun away from him. I wish he hadn't been able to legally buy a gun. Uh, the person who committed the massacre at the uh, synagogue in, in Pittsburgh uh, was uh, a, a white uh, person. Um, many of these gun crimes are committed by rural people from red states. So you can't make it into, as you try to make everything into a partisan uh, political uh, issue. No, it just, just doesn't work. Uh, gun crimes can be reduced to near zero using this simple technique confiscate all guns from Democrats. Now, that, that, that'll really, really do it. I suspect that the violence that we've seen recently tends to be less by Democrats than by crazy right-wing radicals. I don't, I'm not saying they're Republicans. Uh, yes, that's right, boys and girls. Democrats account for 99.9% .9 of the gun crimes. I love these guys. Who, who know the statistics. 99.9% oh, .9 of gun crimes are committed by, by Democrats. All right, $1,000 to your favorite pro-gun charity if you can back up that statistic. Um, and uh, uh, you get lots and lots of stuff like this. Um, I'm 100% for disarming Alan Dershowitz's private security. I don't have private security. I have sometimes had it when I uh, had to be on uh, lecture stages, generally they've been police officers. And I'm fully in favor of police officers having, um, having guns um, uh, and the military having guns. I'm not against guns. Um, everyone, oh no, Dersh doesn't mean that his private security shouldn't have firearms that they deem necessary. He means that you and I shouldn't have them. I don't mind you having them. I don't mind I having them. I don't want the guy who went up to Buffalo to have them or the guy who shut up a ch church in Laguna, uh, California to have them. It's not an easy issue. It's not easy to disarm the people who are going to misuse firearms without also disarming people who might help prevent crimes by having a gun. These are very hard, complex issues, but they're not going to be uh, decided or satisfied uh, or resolved by this kind of nonsense of, of claiming Democrats and only Democrats shoot people or 
or uh, or uh, maybe even by what uh, uh, President Biden said, uh, namely that uh, all gun violence essentially comes from white supremacists. A lot of it does, but some of it doesn't. Um, some of it has come from um, uh, radical uh, leftists or radical Muslims. Uh, we know that there's been some um, uh, terrorism in the United States as a result of that. So, you know, these are issues that uh, require a, a complexity of, of views. Uh, the problem, Professor, is not enough guns in the hands of the peaceable. So this is a guy who wants more guns. I hear a lot of that. If you have more guns, there'll be less gun violence. Duh. No, that's not going to happen. We have the most guns of any country in the history of the world. The history of the world. And we also have more gun violence uh, than any country, at least in modern history. Um, those crazies and others prone to violence do not care a whit as to what the laws they break uh, or to whom they will violate uh, their lives. The criminal will find a way to obtain their weapons of choice while so many lawmakers seek to deprive the honest citizens of theirs. Of course, it's a very difficult issue, but there are ways and there are countries that have figured out ways of allowing law-abiding people to have guns while reducing, not eliminating, you can't ever eliminate, but reducing the number of guns that are in the hands of law violators or people who will use the guns for illegal purposes. I'm so sick and tired of Alan Derp Derp. The man literally has zero actual position on anything, just talks in platitudes, and unfortunately no one ever informed him that his views are nothing more than word salad. He, the word waffle has new meaning every single time he speaks. He's the exact caricature of what is wrong with higher learning. A lot of high apparently, but no learning from history. Um, you know, that's the criticism you get when you try to be balanced. When you try to understand that problems are complicated. It's called a waffle, it's not a waffle. I understand both sides of these issues. I understand that abortion, on the one hand, involves the right of a woman to control her body. On the other hand, it may involve the right, if you believe that a fetus has rights and a fetus is alive. There's nothing wrong with having on the one hand, on the other hand. That's not called waffling, that's called intelligence. That's called thoughtfulness, that's called balance, that's called nuance. The same thing is true with gun control. I understand the argument for gun ownership. Uh, and I understand the argument for gun control, so I waffle. Uh, I'm not going to just come out on one side or the other. I'm not going to be like so many of you, uh, the, the perfect Scotsman. If you're a Republican, you've got to go down the line and buy into every Republican point of view, everything that's said by, by the right. If you're a left-wing Democrat, you've got to buy everything that's said by AOC and by Sanders and by Warren. No, no, that's not me. Sorry. Sorry. You can't have me. Neither side can have me. Um, call it a waffle. I say it's not a waffle. It's trying to understand complex issues and trying to figure out ways of creating a proper balance. Look, the essence of our Constitution Mostly the Constitution, put aside the Bill of Rights for a second, didn't decide hard issues. It didn't make judgments. It has only a few substantive rights in the Constitution, no Bill of Attainder, no ex post facto law, no religious test for any office under the United States. But for the most part, the Constitution told us how to decide these issues, how to resolve these issues. 
First it goes to the House of Representatives if it's a financial bill. Then it goes to the Senate. Then it goes to the President to either sign or veto. Then it goes to the courts and ultimately maybe to the Supreme Court. If you're dissatisfied with that, you go to a constitutional uh, amendment. So the essence of democracy is not decisions that are made one way or the other. It's creating a process by which complex decisions can be resolved. You call them waffles, uh, and I call them difficult, complex choices, choices of evil. Often they are choices of evil. There are no good choices. You know, I like to say that as a criminal defense lawyer, generally when I represent a guilty defendant, which is a lot of what any criminal defense lawyer uh, does, your choices are bad, worse, worser, or worsest. And if you can get from worsest to worse or from worse to bad, you're doing a pretty good job. You're never going to get to good because your client's guilty. So if you can figure out a way of getting your client five years in jail instead of ten, you've done, you've done your, your job. Uh, I think the same thing is often true with uh, cancer doctors or doctors who treat terminal patients. The outcome is not going to be good. Uh, but if you can improve it from dying tomorrow to dying a year from now, or if you can improve it dying six months from now but with less pain and less intrusion, you're doing good. In life, we don't always get the option of picking good. Uh, sometimes we just have to minimize bad. So call me a waffler. Call me somebody who doesn't take positions. I take positions. My positions are that both positions have virtue. Both sides have virtue, both sides have vices, and now let's figure out a way of democratically deciding which side wins. Should it go to the states? Should it go to referendum? Should it go to legislation? Should it go to the federal government? Should it go to the courts? Those are the issues that have to be decided by democracy. Those are the issues that Hamilton and Madison and John Jay wrote about in the Federalist Papers, and those are the issues on which the American Republic was formed. So don't try to simplify these issues. Don't turn complex moral, legal, constitutional issues into cliches. Uh, if you want to have cliches, you know, watch another podcast. But if you want complexity, nuance, difficulty, choice of evils, way of resolving questions, come back and join me on The Dirt Show.